70 years ago, Richard Neustadt, who wrote one of the best early books on the presidency, made the point that leadership is actually more about bargaining than it is about ordering. You have to be <laughs> bargaining, even with your own employees. Right, and, right. And, and I think Donald Trump was singularly unprepared for this because he ran a privately held real estate company, which is probably one of the few companies on, on that scale, few models of a company where you do actually have a boss who bosses everyone around. Most other corporations don't work that way, and certainly the U.S. government doesn't work that way. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Before we get into our show, there are a lot of amazing podcasts out there. Why should you listen to Think Bigger, Think Better? What's it about? How is it different? Well, we're going to talk about science and philosophy, but that's pretty abstract. What's special? How will those help me? Well, first, think better. Let me ask you this. How do you make good decisions? Decisions that are critical to the future prosperity of you and your family. How do you make decisions as a business leader or decisions as a citizen that might affect many future generations? Do you seek out the best information or do you go with your gut? Well, cognitive science tells us going with your gut is way overrated. Yet, on the other hand, today, we're swamped with information. Some of it's of a very dodgy quality. So how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? How, on complex issues such as health, well-being, the economy, the environment, and parenting, can you avail yourself of the best thinking around? Well, there are experts. There is good academic research. The problem with academic stuff is it's, well, it's very academic. Who do you trust? There's great science out there, neuroscience, cognitive science, evolutionary biology, social psychology, behavioral economics, medicine, politics. All of those can help you understand yourself and our world better, and so make better choices. Vaccination, climate change, gluten, charter schools, immigrants and robots, are they stealing jobs? Cell phones, are they destroying our children? Racism or race baiting? Fake news and filter bubbles, media bias. Well, is it bias to the left or bias to the right? Globalization, good or bad? Guns, do they make you safer or more at risk? GMOs, will they feed the poor or destroy the biosphere? Discussions around these critical issues are so politicized or commercialized that they're no longer rational. It seems impossible to find an honest, uncorrupted assessment of the best science available. Yet... Our human future depends on making good choices on those critical issues. Philosophy, well, that seems even more abstract, but wait, what is happiness? Does it even matter? Should we help the poor? What is reason and why don't we do it? What's the difference between populism and democracy? Which is better, nationalism or cosmopolitanism? Should businesses care about inequality? Is sustainability a no-brainer or a conspiracy? Or... Take applied philosophy, business ethics. Business on the left, in caricature, is seen as fundamentally corrupt, the source of much evil in the world, the cause of inequality and environmental injustices. The right, also in caricature, sees business interests as unproblematically linked to prosperity. What is good for business must be good for us all. Well, or is it? So bringing science and philosophy to our most important problems is essential. 
And that's what we do here. Second, think bigger. Humans are capable of amazing things. In just 100 years, our average lifespan has nearly doubled, and the percentage of people living in poverty has halved. When we're inspired, when we collaborate, when we think and act with the bigger picture in mind, we are inspirational and amazing. But when captured by egocentric, closed-minded, petty tribal feuding, we do no service to the potential we have. It always amazes me that the pyramids were built 3,500 years ago. If you think about the scale of those creations, compared to the engineering and material science and knowledge of that day, well, it boggles my mind that something so grand was conceived and attempted and implemented and achieved by such primitive people. The think bigger question then is, what are the pyramids our civilization is building today? Each century brings with it memorable technological and cultural changes. That is, changes to the world of ideas, democracy, universal suffrage, human rights, capitalism. For which big ideas will the 21st century be known? We devote tens of thousands of person hours to launching the 500th variety of toothpaste, tens of millions of person hours trading the global casino of the financial markets, and tens of millions of person hours developing destructive weapons. Will those be our legacy? How do those efforts stack up against what's important? Are we thinking big enough? For what will we be remembered? So in Think Bigger, Think Better, we're going to talk to people, world leaders in their fields who have great ideas on how we can be more reasoned and more rational, how we can inspire each other to greatness. Guests will be famous academics, politicians, New York Times bestselling authors, business CEOs, and activists. Join us, because thinking bigger and thinking better is what we must do. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, I talked to famous historian Jeremy Suri, now a frequent guest on television news shows because of his expertise in foreign policy and in Western responses to terrorism. Jeremy is an exceptionally diverse and prolific scholar, as well as being a world expert in his chosen areas. He writes about American politics, leadership, and foreign policy. He's the author and editor of nine books, including seminal books on security, detente, Kissinger, statecraft, and the Cold War. Jeremy also writes for major newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Daily News, Dallas Morning News, Wired Magazine, and Foreign Affairs. His day job is as professor of history and public policy at the University of Texas at Austin. A son of Indian and Eastern European immigrants, Jeremy grew up in New York and attended modest institutions such as Stanford and Yale. He's married to his college sweetheart, Dr. Allison Alter, who was recently elected city councilor in Austin. They have a teenage son and daughter. For listeners, I'm going to be awarding free copies of Jeremy's books to people who rate our show on iTunes. More details on that at the end of the show. We are here to talk about Jeremy's most recently published book, The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, what that book is about, and what its extreme relevance for today's citizens, uh, that's uh, you and me, voters, and policymakers, and business leaders who are interested in leadership. We talk about why we should study history. What can it teach us about today? We talk about why presidents from both sides of the aisle have just seemed so disappointing in current times. We talk about what lessons from history there might be for our current administration. And finally, about the future of our great democratic institutions. And now, Jeremy Suri. Jeremy, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. 
Many of my listeners are business people and scientists, practical people, perhaps like me, for whom history is abstract, something that you know we left behind in, in 10th grade. One of the things I enjoy about your writing is how you make history relevant, particularly in the realm of leadership, a topic I've taught for 25 years. What should citizens in 21st century democracies, why should citizens in 21st century democracies take an interest in, in history as adults? What can we learn from history? Well, Paul, the first thing I'll say is that every great leader I've studied thought about history and paid close attention to history. There's a reason why presidents spend a lot of time reading history when they can. There are three things that history offers to all leaders, especially in our modern democracy. First, it's a laboratory of human experience. It's the best way to understand how humans tend to behave in the situations that we find ourselves in recurringly, situations of warfare, situations of economic uh, insecurity, situations of a foreign threat and insecurity related to that. So first of all, it's it's a laboratory of human experience. Second, history allows us to see the world around us in new ways, to understand what's contingent, what doesn't have to be the way it is. I often give the example of the way we do health insurance deductions in the United States through people's employee paychecks. That, of course, was a decision made during World War II for reasons that were specific to World War II during a period of wage and price freezes. Understanding that allows one to rethink how we might do things today. So to see the contingencies, the opportunities in the world. And then the third thing about history is history is a repository for creativity. Every creative person I know looks to inspiration, looks to the past to come up with creative ideas. We don't come up with ideas out of the blue. It's by studying how other people, other great people have thought about issues that we learn to think about them in new ways today. So to imagine the future, we have to study the past. That's fabulous. And more than that, so why should a, I can understand for policy leaders and business leaders, but what do you hope that citizens will learn? Why would an adult citizen, you know, a concerned citizen, an active citizen, pick up a book on history? What might they take away from it? Well, I hope active citizens, Paul, are voters. And so if they're voters, they're making decisions about who they think should lead their city or their uh, state or their nation. And um, I would want them to be informed. That's the first thing. Second, I think the hardest thing that a citizen has to do is to figure out how to make his or her way in the world. And that involves understanding yourself. That's the world of psychology and psychoanalysis, perhaps, but also understanding the world you're in. And that's the world of historical analysis. I tell every student of mine that when they're going out into a new field, a student of mine who wants to become a business person or become a doctor, they better understand something about how that profession has developed over time if they're going to try to make their way into that profession today and tomorrow. You know, that's that's absolutely fabulous. And, and a lot of what people do read is what you describe as the psychological aspect of it, of looking inward right. for insights and how to conduct themselves in the world. They don't spend enough time looking outward at the world, at how the world is and how the world changes. And as you said in, in your description, what's contingent? So, you know, what must we live with, but what could we change and what's important to change? So I think that's fabulous. Precisely. I think that's that's very well said. And I think it's about context. We have to know ourselves and we have to know our environment. That's Sun Tzu, basic strategy in theory. Yes, indeed. Well, it's fair to say I've read everything there is to read about business leadership. I've made made my living for a few decades in this area. Striking to me how business school scholarship is what the business leaders would read about 
leadership, how they study leadership, ignores almost everything that's been written about history, historical leaders, military leaders. I think it's a great oversight. I think that business leaders and business professors could learn a great deal from approaches to yours. And and if I want to say something to potential readers of The Impossible Presidency, it's replete with leadership insights, which are of great interest. So I recommend it highly. Can I ask another question? Please. One of the uh, main premises of the impossible presidency, correct me if I'm wrong, is that contemporary presidents have struggled with the demands of the office. And in many respects, you could say that they've failed. I think even some presidents that you greatly admire, you'd say are disappointments or failures, at least don't live up to expectations. So why have so many recent American presidents failed and failed miserably? Well, I think uh, this is the paradox that really underpins the book and underpins, I think, the the challenge of leadership in our society today. And, and this book grows as much out of my experience talking to business leaders and others as it does doing the research and, and, and talking to policy leaders. We have so much power as Americans and we have so many resources, but yet we're underperforming. And I think this is particularly true for the presidency for two reasons. First, presidents are trying to do too much. So what you're seeing and what I what I describe in the second half of the book is, is actually a, a series of very skilled figures, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan, all of different skill sets, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. But they're, they're basically depleting their resources by focusing on too many things. There's not enough strategic focus. They're tactical rather than strategic. They're reactive rather than forward leading. That's the first problem. And then the second problem is that they don't have time time management, basic time management. The book is filled with descriptions and also reprints uh, images of presidential calendars. And it's fascinating to see how presidents almost immediately lose control of their time and end up without the time to do the things that matter most. And so the combination of overstretch, overload, and insufficient or inappropriate time management, those things make it so that most presidents start out failing from the first day they're in office. Well, you said something in the book that was very powerful for me, I thought, was that you said that the process by which someone gets elected is the process of raising, inspiring people, of raising their expectations for the future. That's how some of our great orators, including, of course, Reagan, Obama, Clinton, Kennedy, got elected. But the demands of the office, the struggles of the office, the complexity of the office, the structure of the American political system make living up to that nearly impossible. And so they're in a sense set up to fail because we have unrealistic expectations about what a single person is called the great man theory of leadership, what a single person can accomplish. Is that is that your view? Absolutely. I, I think there's been a rhetorical inflation with every generation. Um, and some of that is we're victims of our own success because some of the rhetoric I spend a lot of time on from Lincoln and Roosevelt, those those figures for, for reasons related to their periods, uh, were able to live up to a lot of that rhetoric. And so there's an expectation that as our rhetoric inflates, we can continue to perform at that level. But there's another problem too, Paul, which is that the rhetoric is more and more divorced from reality because it's not just about getting elected, it's about pleasing so many different groups. So we're moving from rhetoric about policy achievement to rhetoric about special interests. 
And I think this is a problem business leaders have too, because they now have you know so many stockholders and boards that they have to report to, that very quickly you're you're not just inflating what you're promising, but you're inflating the number of contradictions in the promises themselves. Uh, right, 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 right. Yes, you have to make so many things to so many people, and you can't reconcile all of the different promises that you've made to different precisely, precisely. constituents. Yeah, that's a nature of a pluralistic society is that we have you know so many different people with you know emotional and moral interests and how we progress as a country that's right that's right and we're so fearful of of angering anyone who's powerful and so i see part of the failure coming back to your other question as leaders sounding bold but not actually being bold in their behavior Right, right, right. You know, just so if I can take a contrary point of view for a moment, the 20th century was one of the great centuries, you know, for humankind, you might say it's the greatest century ever in some respects. I mean, there were horrors, there were nuclear war, and there were uh, World War II particularly was a, a sort of global disgrace. But um, on the other hand, we lifted 2 billion people out of poverty during the century, the extended human life spans from being, I think, mid-50s to something closer to 80 years old. We extended human rights in a real practical way in the vote to women, people of color, LGBT. Technological progress has obviously been white hot, moon landings, the International Space Station. So we haven't won any of those battles for human rights or technological battles or poverty or any of that stuff, but but we've had some successes. So it's interesting. Is history like sausages? <laughs> you don't want to look too closely about how it's made. Is progress always, I mean, our times, particularly right now, are, seem to be incredibly turbulent and complex and messy. Is it always like that for presidents? Well, I think, yes. I, I think that's a very good point. There's, there's the reality of a very messy world. And, and yes, it's a, it's a sausage factory or it's a kitchen in a Chinese restaurant. Uh, you always enjoy what you're eating more before you see how it's made. So that there is a lot to that. But I think it's also fair to say that in the last 30 to 40 years, the rate of improvement in the lives of people, uh, at least in the United States, has not improved commensurate with the resources, the technological changes, and the rhetoric that we promised. You could make a case for China, certainly, in the ways in which over the last 30 years that, that society has lifted so many people out of poverty. But if you look at the United States today, our education levels, our life expectancy, our infant mortality rates, our crime rates, our gun rates, they've all gotten worse than they were 30 years ago. So. Well, that's a good point, actually. I've been looking at it from a global scale, but from an American point of view, could say that we've leveled off or we looks like we're leveling off in the last 50 years. I, I think that's right. And, and the statistic that I look at most on this is education levels. We were leading the world in educating more and more people in every generation from the early 20th century to 1970 or so. And since then, we have fallen behind. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. So you wrote the possible presidency with an eye on the institution of the presidency, the office of the presidency, and how it could be improved for the future. So what did your scholarship suggest to the sources of presidential success? If you've picked through the 45 that we've had, what did you single out? Well, I think there are a number of things. It's a great question. First of all, I do think being able to tell a story, being able to explain to people what you're doing is more important than being able to please multiple groups. And this comes back to your earlier excellent question. The electoral system actually does not choose storytellers. It chooses people who can please multiple groups. But actually, the quality of the story matters most. Abraham Lincoln has a story to tell, and that story changes the nation. 
Franklin Roosevelt has a story to tell. Ronald Reagan has a story to tell. So the ability to be a storyteller, to know your story, to stick to your story, to tell your story, and to bring people into your story. Second, and this is these get progressively harder, humility. This is a real problem we've had since 1945, because to run for president, first of all, you have to have an inordinate uh, ego. Right, right, right. Once you're in office, everyone tells you you are the master of the universe. And so Lyndon Johnson famously says in Vietnam, you know, those are my helicopters. Well, actually, they weren't Lyndon Johnson's helicopters we were using. The sense of, of the world revolving around you and losing sight of the limits of your power as a leader, that is a symptom of our problem with leadership today. To go back to the humility of an early, er, earlier error, I think, is absolutely uh, crucial. The ability to listen, Paul. It's amazing. I, I spent a lot of time reading minutes of presidential meetings, and um, the best presidents are the ones who often say the least. It doesn't mean they're not thinking. It doesn't mean they don't make the decisions in the end. But uh, speaking less is actually in the in the meeting in the in the deliberative mode is probably more important. And then the last thing I'd say is the creativity, the the willingness to take selective risks and not simply kick the can down the road. Most of leadership, when you get close to it, especially in the last fifty years, is putting band aids on problems that don't have solutions, as most big problems don't. Being willing to experiment. Franklin Roosevelt famously said that he wanted to fail and he wanted to fail fast because that's the only way he'd succeed. And more New Deal agencies fail than those that succeed. But the only way he gets to the ones like the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Projects administ- Works Progress Administration that work is by going through the other failures. Uh, you've got to be willing to fail and fail fast and learn from your failures. Uh, that's funny. And that's the one thing that's impermissible. I mean, we almost expect... Uh presidents to be supermen and not fail at all. But we know that the history of the world and history of business and history of politics, the history of the nation states is that littered with failure. It's almost like we're too embarrassed to discuss those things. And we as the citizens don't expect any failures. We don't tolerate any failures of any kind. It's an interesting this is thing. such an important point. This is such an important point. I just want to emphasize what you said so well. So many of the leaders I study recognize failure, but are fearful of admitting it. So they pretend it's not a failure. And we continue down this road. So take Vietnam. Lyndon Johnson, as early as 65, makes it very clear he realizes we're failing in Vietnam. But he's unwilling to acknowledge it. And too often in his career, he's been able to make a failure turn into a success by just doing more of the same. So we just do more of the same for three more years, and it destroys everything Lyndon Johnson is about. With tens of thousands of deaths, Jared. It's a really dangerous thing. Once you spend a lot of money or you send soldiers off to die, it's easier to send more to die and spend more money than to admit your mistake. The, The problem of sunk costs is a huge problem for the United States. Indeed. And there's a paradox, too, because leaders become magnificent storytellers. What you said is, I think that's almost a necessary condition for being a leader in today's world. You're able to craft a beautiful story. But when in the domain of failure, it's almost a a contrary. The great storytellers who weave these amazing narratives with themselves at the center, which is always almost what you have to do to get elected today. It's almost the opposite of humility. And it's the opposite of the kind of relationship with failure that you need to be creative. So it's a funny pot of of skills and, and faculties you've described. And some of them are paradoxical or antithetical, you could say. I think that's absolutely right. What's unique or interesting about a Franklin Roosevelt and a Ronald Reagan, Paul, is that they I mean, they obviously have big egos, but listen to them talk, listen to them speak. They're a little less at the center of their stories. 
when Reagan talks about mourning in America, he doesn't say he's bringing mourning in America. And when, <laughs> My mourning in America. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. And that's different from a narrative of yes, we can when, when the yes, we can is an image of Barack Obama at the center doing, you know, help pushing us all along. That's different from Reagan's mourning in America. And, and there's a different power in a more modest narrative. Uh, that's interesting. And that's Again, not something someone who thinks they can be president by definition has to have a big ego. If you have to get a job with that amount of complexity with those challenges has to. And so you want someone with a big ego who thinks they can do it to also be humble. And, and I don't I don't meet many people like that, to, to be honest with you, in my travels. That's where that's another reason why I think history teaching history is so important, because if you read history, you're you're humbled by realizing how many people who had enormous talent failed. Indeed, indeed. So here's something, I guess, your book, by the way, is marvelously nonpartisan. I mean, it's clear that you have a certain slant on issues like social justice and something like that, but it's not at all, compared to many books that are being written today, an attack on either the left or the right. It's written from a very, if I call it, neutral perspective, a neutral right. voice. But let me ask you a question that's, let me ask you to step out of the scholar mode, perhaps. Uh, how is the current administration typical of the presidents that you've covered in the book? And then how is it different, perhaps discontinuously different, this administration? Well, it's a great question. So, so Donald Trump, in spite of claiming he's so different, uh, has fallen into many, many of the same problems. First of all, like everyone else who comes into office, he overrated his ability to master the issues. Right, he right. overrated how his own prior success would set him up for, for success in office. And remember, he said a few weeks after being off, this is much harder than I thought. <laughs> well, <laughs> welcome to the White House, my friend. You know, it's entertaining, right? I mean, people don't realize, people moan about healthcare in my own country, England and the United States. You know, keeping 333 million people healthy is a technical challenge and a yep. political challenge and a social challenge and a financial challenge of enormous complexity. And we ought to tackle that with considerable humility and yes. not any kind of hubris. So that's probably – we are not surprised the problem's complex, but I think he was, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think – so that's, that's an extreme version of what I think Barack Obama felt his first weeks and months in office. Second, the challenge every president faces, and I think every CEO faces this too, is you realize, wow, I've got all this power – but I can't really make anyone do anything. <laughs> you know, getting things done is actually really hard. Uh, that's interesting. Yes, yes. All CEOs discover that. You think when you're at the bottom of a company, you think by the time you get to CEO that you'll be able to, you'll be like a puppet master. And yeah. in fact, CEOs, the higher you go, the more political and the more the world is influence in wow. its various guises yeah. rather than direction. Very well, good. Well, Seventy years ago, Richard Neustadt, who wrote one of the best early books on the presidency, made the point that leadership is actually more about bargaining than it is about ordering. You have to be <laughs> bargaining even with your own employees. Right, and, right. And, and I think Donald Trump was singularly unprepared for this because he ran a privately held real estate company, which is probably one of the few companies on, on that scale – few models of a company where you do actually have a boss who bosses everyone around. Most other corporations don't work that way. And certainly the US government doesn't work that way. Certainly. Yeah. So I mean, here's the question. Does our democracy, we've seen trend towards nativism to nationalism, white supremacy, a lot of, I think that you and I would agree are retrogressive terms without being too, most people I think would agree that white supremacy and extreme nativism is a re retrogressive move. Will these snowball in other words, 
hatred begets hatred. Mistrust leads to in global institutions means breakdown of global institutions which function on trust. The spirit of dialogue and collaboration between people in the world is collapsed by beggar thy neighbor policies, which exacerbated the Great Depression and why it took us almost 15 years to emerge from that. A collapse of global trade causing economics troubles, which will be, again, blamed on the wrong people, blamed on immigrants or blamed on our training partners or or previous administrations. So is this going to snowball? Does this continue to get worse? Or are there self-corrective forces which will pull us back to a more more reasoned path? What, so what's your view on that? Well, studying history leads us to think it could go either way. So we have to be humble in responding to that. It could go either way. It, it could go the, the negative route if more and more people come to believe that the only solution is to take from someone else, that the world has, too, has a basket of resources that are too small and that we need to, like real estate developers, hold our property and, and extract as much tax from our property as we can. And that, that beggar thy neighbor approach, which certainly was the approach of the United States in the late 20s when we held all the gold and we didn't want to share the gold, that and we put up the highest trading barriers in our history, we could see that happening today connected to racism and hatred and all the things we're seeing. I don't think that's going to happen because as a historian, what I see are tectonics at work that are pushing in the opposite direction. And I see Donald Trump and a lot of the white supremacy and the violence and the beggar thy neighbor policies of today as a last stand, quite frankly, by people who, who have lost. And they're using the political system to try to compensate for their economic, educational, and technological backwardness. And they are a small part of the population. They've hijacked our society. But the reaction to this has shown how strong among the majority of Americans, the majority of citizens in Western Europe, the majority of citizens in many other societies, how strong the reaction is toward a world of openness, a world of movement, a world of trade, a world of technological advancement. And I said that's certainly what I see with young people. And so I don't think this is the beginnings of a trend. I think this is the last stand of an old trend. But that doesn't mean it won't be very damaging. And uh, we'll be better in 10 years. The question is, what state will we be in in 10 years from now? Well, that's really great. So there's a kind of a Hegelian kind of backlash uh, now. The pendulum has swung perhaps too far in certain directions. And this is uh, the people that are left behind, horrified by the... And so the pendulum swung back. But you do see it as you do see positive tectonics. Well, I mean, just just take, for example, uh, the quote-unquote effort to save coal. They can say all they want, uh, Scott Pruitt and others, but coal is gone. The, the, the future of energy production is not going to be coal. You and I know that. Everyone listening to this knows that. Sure. Yeah, the economics of it are, are self-defeating, among yeah. other things. And the technology, right? It's just, yeah. I mean, it, it makes a lot yeah. more sense to use other power sources. This is not even, you don't have to be an environmentalist to realize that coal is, yes. is the past. It's funny, it's almost people are unable to separate in their mind. It's a very good example, being anti-coal with anti-coal miners. And I think that's the history of economic progress in the United States. One thing that the United States has been, well, all nation states are bad at it. But the United States, I think, is particularly bad at when industries collapse – you know, textiles in North, in the Northeast in the United States, manufacturing in Detroit. When they collapse, you know, that's the, the role perhaps of government is to stabilize these collapses that are market induced and to be compassionate towards human beings. And, and that's, 
you know, the case, you could be very pro coal miner. In fact, my grandfather was a coal miner. So I could be very pro coal miners and very compassionate to having them kind to, God, it's the dirtiest job in the world, right? And it's a horrible job. There's plenty of deaths. Who would choose that for themselves? Uh, not so many people. So we could be compassionate and behind them 100%, but we could be anti-coal. But people seem to be unable to separate those two things. It's so interesting. I think it's because we don't have the vibrant social welfare state that we should have. And so that's the paradox of those who have shredded the welfare state uh, at the same time then claiming that uh, technological change is harming coal miners. No, what's harming coal miners is that there isn't a foundation for them to get retrained and have the help to get on with their lives in productive, other well-compensated areas. Uh, and that's what a what leadership should be about. This comes right back to your first question. Our, our leaders are spending too much time trying to win the votes of a few coal miners in a few parts of West Virginia rather than trying to actually invest in the kinds of uh, institutions that would help those coal mining communities to use their productive resources better to serve themselves and to serve our country better. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Well, there's lots there's lots more that we could discuss. You've been super generous with your time. And I want to wish you every success. You know, The Impossible Presidency is an important book. All your books are important, but this is a particularly important book, particularly relevant for today, particularly relevant for people in my audience who are scientists and business leaders who don't spend a lot of time reading history. I, I read the book in a taxi ride and a plane ride. I was so gripped by it. And I want to encourage people to take a look and see if they can't find some value for themselves in investigating your book. Paul, this has been a pleasure. It is always always wonderful to talk with you. And I'm always so impressed at the creativity and the synthetic mind you bring to such important issues. It's so valuable what you offer. Marvelous. Jeremy, I look forward to our next encounter. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Paul. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with a couple of things. The first is an invitation. Please either leave a comment on my website or on Facebook or on Twitter. If there's somebody or a topic that you'd passionately like to hear about on the show. Second, I'd like to leave you with two books and a movie. One book is from the left, Lies Incorporated by Ari Rabin Havd. He talks about manipulation of the truth in areas such as tobacco, climate, healthcare, taxes, and guns. The second book from Cato Institute scholar Johan Norberg is called Progress. While we live in times where it seems, if you listen to cable TV, that the world is ending, Norberg talks about how much progress we've made on violence, poverty, longevity, and much else. Finally, a movie, Merchants of Doubt. If you want a gripping tale of how tobacco, which was discovered to cause cancer, in the 1950s manages to stay in business, then check out Merchants of Doubt. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books. Lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place. Music